Please now take out your Bibles and turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 1. Speak, O Lord. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool while the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, who Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This ends the reading of God's holy word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the privilege of being able to gather together in your name. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of your word. Father, we pray that you would cause your word now to have its intended effect in our hearts and our minds. Lord, as we uh, go over some interesting questions related to how we have received our Bibles, I pray that there would be clarity, that there would be understanding. And Lord, I pray that uh, the, the preaching of your word, uh, these explanations would strengthen the faith and confidence of your people. Lord, I pray that you would give, uh, give wisdom, grant insight and understanding. And Lord, cause your word to accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick up our series once again in the Gospel of John, and we come here to another healing. Uh, last week we looked at how Jesus had healed the official's son, who had come from Capernaum to Cana, and Jesus sent that man home with the promise that his son would live. And as we saw last week, as a result of this encounter, the official and his entire household believed in Jesus. And so not only did that man's son receive new life, but the entire household believed in Jesus and received new life, eternal life. And so our text this morning has another healing, uh, but it contains an interesting challenge. And so we'll actually spend some time this morning unpacking some of these textual questions, looking a little bit at how we have uh, how we have our English Bible, so we'll try to answer some of uh, the questions that come up from the text. Uh, so let's read together John chapter 5. Uh, we'll set the stage here before we launch into that textual question. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So we get the setting. Uh, sometime after this last healing, uh, the one that had happened in Cana and Capernaum, Jesus traveled again back to Jerusalem for another feast, 
Uh, John doesn't tell us which feast this is, as it's not relevant to the story. Uh, but we get the setting here. We are near the Sheep Gate, which would have been the northeast corner of Jerusalem, near to the temple, just outside. Uh, and uh, it says there was a pool with five roofed colonnades. You picture maybe a pergola or with a solid roof uh, built on columns or pillars. Uh, you basically have a, a first century picnic shelter and you're, you're close to the right image here. Uh, and so around this pool with these five roofed colonnades, perhaps taking advantage in part of the shade of the colonnades, uh, were many people with disabilities, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And we'll see uh, in a little while that there is something unique also about this pool. So put a pin in that thought. We've got the setting now, and we'll come back to that. But look with me now for a moment uh, to verse 4 in your Bibles. Depending on which translation you have, that might be a bit of a challenge. Uh, in my Bible, I have an ESV here. There is no verse 4. Well, that raises an interesting question. Uh, why is there no verse 4? Uh, what are we to make of this? Why is there a quote-unquote missing verse from the text? Uh, you'll encounter, if you spend too much time on the internet, you may encounter uh, some King James-only advocates who will use an example like this to say that the modern translations have deleted verses or passages, sections from Scripture, and so those people will tell you that the modern translations, like the NIV, the ESV, uh, they are actually, they are not versions of Scripture. They should be called perversions of the Bible. And so this is actually a very important question for us to address, uh, particularly for the sake of equipping our young people. Uh, we're all familiar with the trope of the angry, bitter, atheistic philosophy professor who loves nothing more than to try to smash the faith of his freshman students. And unfortunately, to the great shame of many churches, we have not always equipped our young people very well. And so they go out into the world and their professor introduces them to this concept of textual variance. Sounds like a complex, scary word, like this one in John 5. And that poor first-year university student is blindsided. Their pastor never told them about this. They had no idea of anything like this in the Bible. Uh, and so, with no idea how to respond, or that there even are answers out there, their faith is often severely shaken. And so, our conviction is that the church needs to address these questions so that our people would be equipped, that they would be prepared, that they would be ready to handle the challenges that will come our way. And so we'll take some time on this question this morning uh, before returning to our text in John. So, as you have now noticed by seeing the missing verse 4, it is true that there are what's called textual variants. And what that means is that there are some differences between the ancient manuscripts that translators use to produce our English Bibles. And so as we approach this topic, uh, my conviction and what I hope to convince every one of you here today as well, is that the existence of these textual variants, when rightly understood, should not shake our confidence or our faith in the Word of God one bit, but if we understand it rightly, will actually serve to strengthen our confidence in the Word of God. So that's where we're going to try to get to. So how? How can understanding textual variants actually strengthen our confidence in Scripture? What we need to understand is that the existence of textual variants uh, is something that testifies to the means that God has used to preserve His Word. I'll say that again. The textual variants are an artifact testifying to the means that God used to preserve His Word. We'll come back to that. So to understand this whole issue, uh, we need to learn something about how we came to have our Bibles here in English. And the Apostle John did not write in English. He did not write in King James English, and no, he didn't even write in Plotich. 
Uh, he wrote in Greek. Uh, and the fact is, we do not have today the original manuscript of John. Right? We do not have the original manuscript uh, that John would have written or had a scribe write for him. What we do have is many ancient copies and fragments of copies of the Gospel of John. As we know, uh, books, letters, uh, paper, papyri, whatever materials, these things all decay over time. Uh, just think of it with us. How many of you still have the very first Bible that you ever received? You Christians who have been Christians for a long time, who have read your Bible for many years, uh, how, many, how many Bibles have you gone through? Um, what's the old saying? Uh, a Bible that's falling apart is a sign of a life that is not. Something like that. Um, so why, why do we have to replace our Bibles? It's because as we use them, they start to wear out. They, they fray, they get damaged, and eventually they're unreadable. Well, now just think of how good your old Bible would look if it had been passed on and well used for several generations. Now multiply that. Imagine how it would look after 1,500 or more years. Right? And so it actually shouldn't surprise us that we don't have the original manuscripts, that we don't have the original copies that were made. Um, but on the other hand, this should not bother us at all either. For what we do have is thousands of copies and fragments of copies, some of them dating all the way back to the second century, within a very short window uh, from the time when they would have been written. Um, and so by collecting and comparing the many ancient manuscripts, manuscript fragments and codices, scholars can discern with great confidence what the original manuscripts actually said. Now, as you would expect, when comparing handwritten copies, there are some differences between manuscripts. Right? So as you compare all these ancient copies of John chapter 5, if you look at them, there are some differences from one manuscript to another, and those differences are called textual variants. Are we following so far? I hope so. Um, and so the fact is, the vast majority of those differences, those variants, are simply errors that were made by the scribes as they were handwriting the copies. Now, if you've ever been copying something by hand, you know how easily this can happen. Right? You misspell a word, uh, you skip a phrase, or perhaps even a whole line. If you're copying someone else's handwritten work, you may struggle to know uh, what, which letters, uh, certain letters they write might not be clear to you, and so you're trying to discern what, what is this word. Uh, you know, early in our marriage, Diana would bug me uh, because she told me that my O's, when I write the letter O, she told me it looked like the letter A. I guess I left it open on the top or something. Um, and I denied this until one day I received a letter in the mail addressed to Riley A's, E-A-E-W-S. Now what had happened is I had handwritten my name, uh, my last name, T-O-E-W-S, and whoever punched in my name into their system agreed with my wife. <laughs> that my O looked like an A, and so I received this letter to Riley Hayes. Uh, so scribes make mistakes, uh, especially, or, and even professional scribes, right? You're, you're, mis you're reading something, you, it's not always clear uh, what the letter is supposed to be. Now, to multiply things, imagine the challenge of trying to hand copy long, long manuscripts before the invention of indoor lighting, electric lighting, before the invention of corrective lenses, or of whiteout. And so for a variety of easily understandable reasons, there are many, many of these small errors, uh, differences between these ancient manuscripts. Uh, and that fact that there are these variants, these differences, is used by the aforementioned atheist university professor to try to destroy the faith of their students. And so they will speak truly of hundreds of thousands of corruptions or errors, these variants in the New Testament. You speak of hundreds of thousands of variants in the New Testament to make it sound like what we have is a hopelessly corrupted text. That we have no way of knowing what the original really said because of these hundreds of thousands of variants. 
Now, we need to understand that is a massively, wildly misleading statement. That is a misleading use of the facts. Uh, Dr. James White writes this. If you put 10 people in a room and ask them all to copy the first five chapters of John's Gospel, you would end up with 10 different copies of the first five chapters of John's Gospel. However, or no two handwritten copies would be absolutely identical to each other. Someone would skip a word that everyone else has. One person would misspell that one word they can never quite get right. Somebody would probably skip a whole line, or even a verse, especially if there were similar words at the beginning or end of the verse before and the verse after. So you would end up with many variants, many of those differences. But would you not still have copies of the same book? Yes. And by comparing all ten copies, you could easily reproduce the text of the original. Because when one person makes a mistake, it is unlikely that the other nine will do so at the very same spot. Close quote. So, I hope you can start to see. Here's how and why the existence of these textual variants should actually strengthen our confidence in Scripture. The reason there are so very many variants is because we have so many handwritten manuscripts. And the more manuscripts you have, the better, if your goal is to gain confidence regarding what the original said. Here's James White again. If we only had a single manuscript of the New Testament, how many variants would we have? Well, we'd have none. That sounds more like it. Or does it? If we only had one manuscript, we would have very little confidence that it accurately represents the original. A single manuscript could have been changed. And how would we know? We would have nothing with which to compare it. While the idea of having no variance may sound great, Variants actually are a natural byproduct of having lots and lots of handwritten manuscripts. And the more manuscripts you have, the better, as far as making sure that what you have accurately reflects what was originally written. Close quote. Now you've probably heard the claim uh, that the Bible has been corrupted or altered at some point. Uh, it's a common theory to say that it was Constantine at the Council of Nicaea, for whatever reason, Constantine gets blamed for everything. Um, so for some reason or another, Constantine changed what was in the Bible, and what we're left with now is an altered, a corrupted text, and we have no way of knowing what was really in the original. But what I hope you can see just from this uh, little discussion is how laughable such a theory is. How did God give us the scriptures? They didn't drop out of the sky on golden plates. Uh, rather, the apostles and their companions wrote letters and gospel accounts, and these were then copied and sent around. The copies were copied, and the copies of the copies of the copies were sent around and copied. So, just think of this. Follow with me here again. What would be needed if you wanted to pull off a conspiracy like this to change something in Scripture? You would need to have a person or a group of people round up every single manuscript or manuscript fragments, change them all so that they now match your new agenda, change them in such a way that it leaves no evidence that you've tampered with all of these manuscripts. Uh, then you'd have to redistribute all these manuscripts out there uh, for future archaeologists to find. And if you missed even one manuscript fragment buried in the sands of Egypt somewhere, or left any trace of tampering, your whole conspiracy fails. So the fact is, there is no evidence of any attempted conspiracy like this. And so this is how God has preserved his word. Through the massive number of handwritten manuscripts scattered all over the known world, making it impossible for anybody to really bring a, a change, a conspiratorial change, 
into the manuscript tradition. There has never been a person or a group of people in possession of all the manuscripts out there, and so there is no evidence to support the wild theory of large-scale tampering or alteration in the manuscript tradition. And so, as we see, the existence of a large number of textual variants should actually give us more confidence, for they are simply the natural byproduct of having a large number of handwritten copies, which is the very means by which God has chosen to preserve his word. So there we have an introduction to what's called textual criticism, and we'll spend more time on this when we come to a bigger section later in John, the story of the woman caught in adultery. Um, but for now, we still actually haven't answered uh, why there seems to be a verse missing in chapter 5. So if you have a King James Version or an LSB or an older NASB, uh, you likely have verse 4. If not, you likely have it in a footnote. And your footnotes, my footnote reads like this. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So how do we explain why this is in some versions and not in others? James White answers this way. This verse is a classic instance of how a marginal note explaining something in the text can end up as part of the text somewhere down the line. So John references the pool of Bethesda and the sick lying about it, and that would be confusing to some people. And so a marginal note explaining traditional belief regarding the angel stirring the waters could easily, easily have been inserted accidentally by a later copyist, thinking that it was actually part of the text that had been left out and placed in the margin, close quote. So another thing we learned about the process of scribes, uh, handwriting, hand-copying manuscripts, uh, when scribes would make a mistake, what they would sometimes do, uh, rather than scrap the entire expensive papyri uh, and start over and lose all the work they spend on that page, uh, they would sometimes write their missed word or their missed phrase up in the margin. Uh, the margins could also sometimes be used for explanatory notes from a scribe, uh, and so you see how that becomes a bit of a challenge for the next guy who's going to copy this manuscript, right? He comes up and finds your note, and he is left with a question, right? Was this note meant to be in the text, right? Is that a little asterisk there because you meant to put this in at verse 4? Or is it simply a marginal note explaining something in the passage? And so how would that next copyist know? He can't call you and ask you. Uh, and so he has a decision to make. And so this is very likely how this section came to be included in some of the later manuscripts, as D.A. Carson notes as well. Probably the lines in verse 3b and 4 were first introduced as marginal glosses, that is something from the margin that got into the text. Um, and then he points out, not every clause was introduced at the same time. Right? So this came in sections. Some manuscripts have a portion of it, some have a longer portion of it, uh, and some have the whole thing reflecting the popular belief about the cause of the water's disturbance. So I hope that makes sense. You can come ask me more later if you have, still have some questions. So to pick back up in our text, uh, we are here at the pool of Bethesda with many blind, lame, and paralyzed people lying around this pool. And let's read now together from verse 5. And that one is not a trick question. There is a verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. And so here we can see why there might have been an explanation offered. What we can see from verse 7 is that the man believed that by getting into the pool when the water was stirred up, he would be healed. But he says that he had always been too slow. He could never get into the water in time. Somebody always came uh, in front of him. So whatever the cause of the stirring of the water was, a lot of these pools would have been fed by 
by underground aquifers, uh, which could produce some churning of the waters. Uh, whether it was an angel who did this or not is not actually relevant to this text. Um, but the focus here is not on the pool or the beliefs of the people at the time, but the focus here of this text is on Jesus and what he is going to do for this man. So we've seen this man has been here, he's been, maybe not here, but in this condition for 38 years. Jesus sees him, and Jesus knows that he has been in this condition a long time. Now we're not told how he got here, whether, he, whether or not he has any family, but he seems to have been left alone. For as he says, I have no one to help me into the water. So just imagine what life is like for this man. We hear it from his perspective. He believed that healing was so close for him here in this pool. And so you can imagine the hope as the water would stir, as he would anxiously and excitedly begin trying to make his way down into the pool to find the healing that he longed for only to be disappointed again and again, as he said, he never could reach the water in time. So Jesus saw him, and Jesus knew. Jesus knew he had been there a long time. Jesus knew with nobody telling him, just as he knew of the Samaritan woman's messy past and her current life of sin. Jesus here again displays his supernatural knowledge. Jesus saw him, Jesus knew, and Jesus had compassion on him. He said to him, do you want to be healed? Now, unlike most of the healings we encounter in the Gospels, this man had not sought out Christ. There had been no prior discussion between Jesus and this man. Jesus simply sees him, knows his situation, and evidently moved with compassion, asks him, do you want to be healed? And the man, perhaps not fully understanding what was being offered to him, simply explains this tragic situation. I have nobody to help me. Jesus asks no more questions. Moved with pity, he simply says, verse 8, get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. See the heart of our Savior. Jesus reaches out to this man, not in response to any display of faith, no religious devotion, no seeking of Christ on his part. Jesus simply sees him, knows his misery, has compassion, and Christ's heart goes out to this man. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Brothers and sisters, our Savior sees you. He knows your struggles. He knows your misery. He knows how long you have suffered under your affliction, your lingering illness. He knows how you struggle in that difficult relationship. He knows the burdens that you carry for your loved ones. He knows the misery of your condition your struggle with sin, the weakness of your flesh. He knows, for he took on full humanity and he suffered as we suffer. He was tempted as we're tempted. And so the scripture tells us he is now a merciful and faithful high priest whose heart is touched by our weaknesses whose heart is full of love and compassion for his people. 
So as Christ saw this man, knew his misery, and was filled with compassion, so does Christ feel compassion for all his people. See our Savior's heart in this text and take comfort. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. This man who had been in this condition for 38 long years was instantly healed at the word of Christ. His legs and ankles became strong. His body was restored. Whatever his ailment was, it was gone. And so he followed Christ's instruction, took up his bed, and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me said to me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Now the first thing we need to note here is that Jesus did not command Sabbath breaking. You go to the law of God and see what God actually requires, and you will find that there was no prohibition, there was no law against mat carrying. According to the law of God, therefore, it was perfectly lawful for him to do this. What we do have is a command against bearing burdens in God's law, but in context, you'll see what's in view there is bearing burdens for the sake of commerce, right? bringing your produce from outside in the country into Jerusalem. As one commentator puts it, commenting on this command, uh, that the burden spoken of would be baskets of fruits, vegetables, or fish, which were brought in from the country by the villagers who came into the temple services, and also the wares of the city, which were taken to the gates to be sold in turn to them. You see it also in Nehemiah. He writes, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So you notice the aim of that instruction was to prevent people from doing their business on the Sabbath. But as Jesus says in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It was intended as a blessing. And so we see the rulers of the Jews turned the Sabbath itself into a burden on the people, thereby undermining the point. Right, so as this man was now leaving the area, having no more reason to stay by the pool of Bethesda, the Sabbath did not require him to leave his mat there until the next day, or perhaps to stay near it so it wouldn't be stolen. And so as the Jews tell this healed man, it's unlawful for you to carry your mat, they are going beyond what the scripture actually requires. It was not unlawful. It was simply against the traditions and rules that they had added to the law. Now, it's actually vital for us to understand this point, as a lot of evangelicals are very confused when it comes to the relationship between Christ and the law of God. Their view is essentially that Christ came and overthrew God's law. You may have heard it said, for the sake of love, God broke the law. Now, that is a serious problem, and I thank God that they are wrong about that. For if Christ broke God's law, then Christ is a sinner. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. 1 John 3, verse 4. Sin is lawlessness. And so if Christ broke God's law, then Christ is a sinner. And if Christ is a sinner, then your faith is in vain, and you are still in your sins. 
If Christ was a sinner, he could not have been our unblemished sacrificial lamb. If Christ was a sinner, then he does not have righteousness for him to grant to us. And we love to sing that line, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. If Christ was a sinner, we have no righteousness in which to stand, and we do not stand faultless before the throne. And so if Christ was a sinner, there is no righteousness. There is therefore no salvation, and there is therefore no gospel. So no, praise the Lord, Christ did not break God's law, nor did he ever instruct others to break the least of God's commandments. What instead we have in this text, and many similar instances, is Christ coming up against the traditions of the Jews of his day. Christ revealed what God's law truly required, both in his teaching and in his example. Jesus never breaks the law of God, but he absolutely does challenge the authority of the religious leaders of his day, many of whom had turned missing the point into a fine art form. We see that clearly in this text. Notice this man had been disabled for 38 years, has now been healed. He has been restored. He has been made whole. And the Jews see this formerly disabled man who had been suffering and in misery. And what was their response? To rejoice with those who rejoice? To thank God that a suffering child has been made well? No. They see this man undoubtedly full of joy from this healing, and they say, you really shouldn't be carrying your match anymore. Now, maybe they didn't know his story at first. Perhaps they weren't aware, but that's quickly dealt with as the man tells them, the man who healed me, he told me, take up your bed and walk. There you have it, no excuses. They've heard now, this man has been healed. A miracle has occurred in our midst. What's more, it was done by somebody nearby. Should there not be joy? Should there not be elation? Should there not be praise and thanksgiving to God? Should they not seek out this man to learn more of him and perhaps to learn from him? We see from their response, they had no interest in any of this. Notice their masterful dodge as they sidestep the question of the healing to focus on their tradition. Right? This man just said, I, the man who healed me, he told me. And instead of asking, who is the man who healed you? What do they ask? Look to the text, verse 12. They say, who is the man who said to you, take up your mat and walk? Talk about missing the point. Something amazing has happened, and instead of joy or wonder, they react as curmudgeons, grumpy old men, muttering under their breath about their traditions. Who told you to carry your mat? Now, to make the matters even more tragic, their curmudgeonly ways were carried out in the name of godliness. We see that the Jews had built a fence around the Torah, They've given these fence laws to keep you uh, several steps back from ever accidentally violating one of God's commands. And those traditions, those fence laws, uh, were ostensibly aiming at godliness. But right? if you would have asked the first person, why, why keep this fence law? Um, you can say, perhaps it was out of a good motive, so that we do not violate the law of God. But yet we see how it caused them to miss the point of what God's law was really all about. As now Christ, the very image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature has come, God in the flesh, the full embodiment of righteousness, the only full and complete Torah observer who has ever lived. And what did the rulers of the Jews do? They condemned this man as a law breaker. 
they missed the point. And so this is a wonderful test for anyone who thinks they have been growing in godliness, right? those who view themselves as having become rather sanctified, living godly lives. Examine yourself. Are you growing also in humility? Jonathan Edwards very helpfully observes, those who truly are the most advanced in grace are the most eminent saints, as he puts it, are those who will see the clearest how far they still have to go. The more true spiritual light you have, the more true grace you have, the more humbled you will be. For you then see clearer than others how far short of God's glory you still fall. Right? That the clearer your sight of God's vastness, of his infinite excellency and glory, the clearer you see that, the clearer you will see what kind of worship, service, and devotion you owe to such a God. And you will then see how far short you fall compared to what you ought to do. And that serves to bring humility. And so it is an absolutely masterful trap of Satan's that men can so easily fall into spiritual pride, right? supposing themselves to have advanced beyond others. They become puffed up in their knowledge, secure in their self-righteousness, looking down on others, whereas true maturity, true growth in godliness has nearly the polar opposite effect. For it brings humility. It brings tenderness of conscience. A deep concern for the things that God is concerned about. It brings grief, got greater grief and anguish over our own sin than of that of those around us. So brothers and sisters, examine yourselves. If you believe you are advancing in grace, as I hope everyone is, if you think you are being sanctified, growing in godliness, ask yourself, is the fruit of the Spirit growing in me? Do I have more love, more joy, more peace and patience toward those around me? Is my pursuit of godliness pursuing humility in me? Am I growing to hate my own sin more? Am I seeing more clearly who God is, who I am, and the distance in between? If you find that your alleged pursuit of godliness is simply producing the curmudgeonly spirit of the Pharisees in you, then there's a good chance that you too have been missing the point and have fallen into pride and self-righteousness. <clears throat> who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man who had healed, who had been healed, couldn't answer the Jews at first, for Jesus had slipped away in the crowd, which is also interesting. If you remember the setting that we saw at the beginning, there was a multitude of needy people here. We had a multitude of blind, lame, and paralyzed. Jesus came into this crowd of sick people, and he healed one. And before that man even knew his name, Jesus slipped away. Before word could get around, before the, the crowd of those waiting for the movement of the waters could line up and ask Jesus for healing, he left the area and found that man again later to have the follow-up conversation. He says, You are well. Sin no more. That nothing worse may happen to you. Sin no more. This is a call to repent. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And we ask, what could be worse than a lifetime 
of misery and suffering. Answer, an eternity of misery and suffering. That would be worse. This man had just received a great blessing from Christ. He had been healed. He had been made well. He had been set free from his suffering. But now Jesus alludes still to a great danger. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. In the dialogue that follows this section, which we'll look at next week, Jesus speaks of the judgment that is to come. Those who do evil will face judgment, the sentence, condemnation. Much, much, much worse than a life of suffering here on earth is eternal suffering. To bear the wrath of God for eternity in hell. And if this man now lives the rest of his life in sin, if he ignores the warning of Christ, then his 38 years of misery here on earth will be nothing compared to the misery yet to come. But if he repents, if he believes in Christ, then the healing that he has experienced, the blessing he has experienced, will be just the foretaste of what is to come. Christ heals in more ways than one. His mission on earth, the purpose of his earthly ministry, was not primarily about bringing temporary physical healing. As we saw, Jesus entered into this area with multitudes of disabled people, and he healed only one. Jesus' ministry provided foreshadowing of his healing power. The full healing of all his people and all their disabilities and diseases is still Christ's mission was to come and to conquer death once and for all. And we see in this text part of the path that he walked to that end. Let's continue verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So we see their view of Christ is that he is now violated both the fourth and third commandments. Right? The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. By their interpretation, he was violating that by healing people on the Sabbath. Uh, also, by calling God his own father, making himself equal with God, would be blasphemy in their eyes. Right? Taking the name of the Lord in vain. Uh, so, third and fourth commandment violations. And as we'll see throughout John, Jesus' conflicts with the Jews would only continue to escalate. Right? Here we see the beginnings of open hostility, we see the desire for murder on the part of the Jews. These would continue to build up over the course of his ministry, leading ultimately to his crucifixion. And this was by design. In the providence of God, the greatest evil that was ever committed, which was the murder of God the Son, this was the very means that God planned to bring about the redemption of his fallen creation. Christ bore the penalty due to sinners. He rose to life on the third day, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and now this offer goes out to all. Just as he asked the disabled man in verse 6, do you want to be healed? Healed 
not merely of your physical ailments or disabilities. Uh, we do not have a promise of that in this life. But healed of the much greater problem that plagues us. That being our sinfulness. The sentence of condemnation that lies over us. We are all, by nature, like this man, stuck in a state of misery. And the sad thing is, for many people, they don't recognize it to be misery. And they, perhaps, more than all, are to be pitied. For they live their lives in willful blindness. They live in a culpable ignorance. No matter your health, no matter your wealth, no matter how good your life seems to be, by all earthly metrics, if you are not forgiven by God, you are in a pitiable position. Your soul is in danger. Hear the warning of Christ to the Laodiceans, Revelation 3.17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now before we'll be ready to receive the good news of the gospel, we need to be made aware of our need. Before we can receive the hope, the help, and the forgiveness and healing offered by Christ, we need to come to terms with our own So if you have not come to Christ in repentance and faith, my friends, you remain under the wrath of God. As Scripture testifies, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as Scripture also testifies, the wages of sin is death. That's Romans 3.23 and 6. The good news is that if you will repent and believe, if you will turn from your lifestyle of sin and turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ and throw yourself on his mercy, you will be saved. On the day of judgment, you will be declared righteous by God, not because of what you have done, but because of what Christ has done. He was the sinless one. He was the one who never broke the Sabbath, who never blasphemed, but who loved the Lord his God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. He is the only one who has ever done all that God requires of man. He gave himself in the place of sinners, and he offers them now his perfect righteousness. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be cleansed? Do you want to be forgiven? Then receive the offer of Christ. Turn from sin and throw yourself upon his mercy. Then be baptized, join the people of God, and by his grace, go and sin no more. Amen.